Uh, y'all pray with me real quick. Jesus, um, we just uh, we come and, and, and submit ourselves to your word. Um, sur- surely there are a lot of things that we can be devoted to in this life. There's a lot of things we can submit to. There's a lot of things that are constantly being uh, spoken and shouted at us uh, that we are, we are called to give ourselves to. And so we take a moment and we say that we will, uh, we will say no to those things um, and we will say yes to what it is that you have for us um, for the next uh, you know, little bit of time, Lord, I, I pray that um, you really would focus uh, the ears of our hearts um, and that, that those ears would listen to your voice. Um, protect us from hearing anything that is not of you, whether that comes from me or comes from inside uh, my, my friends here. Um, but would they listen to Jesus? And would Jesus, you be more beautiful uh, when this is over than you are uh, to us even right now? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so I, uh, my, my, as Evan alluded to, my family and I uh, live in the Napier community of Nashville, the Napier neighborhood. This is what we call historic South Nashville, uh, which is actually probably considered almost downtown to most people in Nashville now, uh, just south of the inner ring of the interstates. And uh, we live in a community of very historic poverty. Um, since probably about the 40s or so when public housing was built, Napier is the, the largest existing public housing, or what some people call the projects, um, that's left in Nashville. When the interstate system came in, it it cut my community in half. Uh, It was a very historic middle and upper middle class black community. Um, When the interstates came in, it divided it. There used to be seven grocery stores in my neighborhood. There's now zero. Um, There used to be, you know, cultural places, places for people to hang, you know, just, just uh, a community just like any community that you would want to be a part of. And it's not, it's not like that anymore. It's, it's, um, you know, it's a neighborhood that it, it's in the news all the time, but for all the wrong reasons. Um, I, I, I sometimes like to say it's where the sirens stop. When you hear a siren passing you, well, when I hear it, I hear it, and then it just stops because the police car or the ambulance or the fire truck is going to my neighborhood. So I say that because as we get into this passage, we're, we're given a picture of a community of people where it literally says there were no needs among them. Like this was, this was such a radical community that the, the author of the book of Acts, who, who we believe is Luke, was so bold as to say in this community, no one had any needs. And I thought about, you know, like if I came up to you and I didn't tell you what we were preaching on, if you didn't hear that story read, and I just started to describe to you a club I wanted you to join with me, like if I did that to you right now and I described it like this, what would you do? Would you say yes? Would you want to come and be a part of this community, even if you didn't know that this was the community described in Scripture? Would you want to be a part of a community that's described truly as one in heart and mind? And some of you would say, well, yeah, absolutely. And some of you would be like, but I can't even imagine what that would be like. You know, we're, we're getting into the fall and um, weather's changing. Some of us are probably already uh, preparing our hearts for the trauma that is Thanksgiving with extended family. Uh, when you think about what you're going to experience just within your family over the next few months, if we take, uh, you know, Halloween, Thanksgiving, Christmas, right? Kind of the, the, the finish line of the year with all the holidays. Can you even imagine this statement, one in heart and mind? 
I would even argue one in heart makes more sense to me than one in mind these days, right? Like I can say with my family, like we love each other, but we certainly don't agree in mind about things. Well, again, a radical, radical community that's being described right here. And it, and it begs the question, I think, for us, um, immediately we kind of get faced with this question of, well, is, is, is this example here in the book of Acts, this example of this body of believers, this example of the church, is it given here as an example that we're supposed to follow? I hope some of you asked that question when you heard this. Your, your, your first response is probably, whoa, what, what a ridiculous community. What a radical community. But I think the very next question that we should come to is, what am I supposed to do with this? Like, is this given as just, oh, this is just a nice, sweet example, or is this given as a command? Um, it was probably maybe a month or so ago, some of you might have seen it, in the New York Times, they released the, the results of this huge, pretty long, uh, kind of long-going study um, the the um, economist on the study is a guy named Raj Chetty. He's an economist at Harvard, and he specifically studies economics as it pertains to the poor and people in poverty. Some of you might have seen this. And the, the article and the, the study as it came out in the New York Times, uh, I'm going to pull it up because I wanted to read one section of it. It, it. it said some things that were really ridiculously incredible. Um, it said that of all the different markers... Of all, I don't have it anymore. Of, I'll, I'll just try to do it from memory. Of all the different um, metrics and markers that define kind of what brings people out of poverty, uh, they, they've kind of discovered one thing that is more powerful than all the others. And it's what they call social connectedness or economic connectedness. So more so than, I think they said, um, the education that's available in your area, more so than the upward mobility and jobs in your area, something that can actually bring people out of poverty, the most powerful force to bring people out of poverty is relationships or economic connectedness. In other words, how well a community does at being connected to one another across social and economic lines, that from a completely non-biblical, non-spiritual perspective, just purely from a secular economic study, that's the most powerful thing to bring people out of poverty. And what this means is that this early church understood something that it's taken about 2,000 years of economic study to report, because this was like a bombshell report when it came out. That the most powerful thing we can do to deal with the issues of poverty is to just be friends across social and economic lines. Well, the early church got this too, right? They were already doing this, and they were doing this in a way that feels radical and crazy even to us today. They got it. You know, in the, in the Greco-Roman world, this idea of reciprocity or kind of giving and taking amongst groups, that only happened outside of this church, that only happened with people in the same social and economic uh, status and stratus, right? Reciprocity only existed between people on the same level. And the, and the uh, early church came in and they exploded that with the way that they lived. I think the title of this sermon series that we've been looking at in the book of Acts is, is you know, a witness or a bold witness. This was a witness, this, this early church, the way it behaved, not what it taught, not what the preachers preached, 
but the way it acted, the way it lived out what the preachers preached was a witness to the world and it exploded what people expected at that time. We live in the exact same opportunity. We have the exact same opportunity as a church because guess what? In 2,000 years, reciprocity still happens between people of the same social and economic class because that's a human problem, right? That's not a historical problem. That's not a cultural problem. That's a human problem. So it leaves us now, today, us just in this room right now, um, looking at this story in the book of Acts, is this just a good example that we're supposed to look at, or is this something we're supposed to follow? Well, I think the answer is both. Um, I'm going to introduce to you a kind of a, a way to look at the book of Acts that I think will be really helpful. Matt might have mentioned this to you already, but it's just a, a lens to kind of look at for the rest of the book. Acts is a historical book, right? It's a history um, it's not written for the same purpose necessarily that the Gospels were, were written. It's not written for the same purpose that the letters of Paul were written. It's, its type of literature is a history, and so it is descriptive. It is to describe what a group of people did. It's not necessarily prescriptive, right, which is command. But we also know it's the Word of God. And there's no description of anything in the Word of God whereby God isn't looking at us and saying, what is it that you see here? How are you seeing my principles, my truth, the way I want you in this world to work? How are you seeing that in this story that then calls you to examine your own life and live in such a way? So you see how it's both prescriptive and descriptive? This is, and I'm going to say this because this is important, this is a, a story of one particular group of people living at one particular place in one particular time and how they were convicted to live out the truth of Jesus. We are also a group of people living in a particular place in a particular time, and we too are called to live out the truth of Jesus. So, what is it that's described in this story that we are to take with us? That's our question this morning. So let me first ask you this as we launch on answering that. What is it that God wants for you? If that's what we're supposed to follow, if maybe not this particular description exactly, it's not given exactly as like, a, well, if you just do everything they said, then you too will have a beautiful community. If that's not what it is, then what is the thing that God wants for us that we can see in this story? Um, I was, uh, I think I was in college and I was attending a church um, in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. I went to University of Alabama, Roll Tide. And... Uh, I remember the pastor, I'd only been at the church a couple weeks, and I remember the pastor coming in and doing a little lesson with a group of the, the like, nurse, or not nursery, but kind of the children's church age, our kid town kind of age. And I remember him sitting down and kind of getting close to them, and, and this is what he said. He said, this is what I remember, he said, God loves good little boys and girls. Which on the one hand is kind of sweet, and I kind of get what he's saying, but on the other hand, the older I've gotten in my faith, the more I don't think that's what I want to teach my kids, that God loves good little boys and girls. Because what's behind that is probably the same thing that's behind, and I don't know the story of everyone in this room, but it's probably some of the same thing that's behind some of the church hurt or the experiences that you've had with church that might be why you're coming to West to, to, to kind of get away from which is this idea that God loves this perfect version of myself, and if I can get to this more perfect, this more good little boy or girl version of myself, then I am who he loves. 
or I will become who he loves, or I'm doing what he wants for me. And so let me say this to you. God doesn't love good little boys and girls. God loves boys and girls. And what that means for us right now is the first thing that God is after for you. And the way that this church became the church that it is is because they knew this. The, what God wants for us and what he's after is us. He wants you. He doesn't want your holiness. He doesn't want the trophy version of you. He wants you. You are who he loves right now. Scripture says you are who he loves before you even became the you that you are right now, which means if there's any past version of you, a past version of you that's even worse than the you that you are now, he loved that version too. What I'm getting at is what God wants for us before anything else, before any version of you that you hope you become, which I hope it for you too, and I hope it for myself, the, the thing God wants for you first is a relationship with you. What does a relationship mean? It means that God wants intimacy with you. God wants something real. If you are in a relationship and you know that to be in that relationship, you have to be a certain version of yourself, none of you would say that's a relationship. God wants a relationship with you. He wants intimacy. He wants conversation. He wants to know you. He wants you to know him. And he wants you to be devoted to him. And some of you are going, okay, I, I think I know where you're going, but what about the law? Like, what about this idea of that there are good behaviors that God calls us to? Well, good. Let's talk about that for a second. What about the law? If I'm saying to you that God doesn't want the good little boy version of you or the good little girl version of you, then, then what place does God's law and his commandments and his holiness have? If you go back to the Old Testament when God's law was first given, when any kind of, you know, even small version of the, of the fact that God wants something for his people was given, when we go back to that place in the Old Testament, we find this. That God's law, you can, you can see this in Psalm 119, that God's law is a picture of him and his character. If you grew up hearing that Christianity was a rule book that you followed or, a, or an employee handbook, that if we can all just kind of follow the employee manual, the employee handbook, that will give us kind of the, the perfect version of ourselves that now this perfect little community can have. God's law is not an employee handbook. It's not a, it's not a life do-good manual. It's a description of God's character himself. In other words, if God calls you to be generous, it's because God himself is generous. If God calls you to be loving, it's because God himself is loving. So what we're getting at is that the very law of God is teaching you what it means to have a relationship with him which is the thing I just said is what he wants from you. He's giving you a picture of who it is that he is offering to you. He's giving a picture of himself when he says, I want to be in relationship with you. This is a picture of who I am who wants to be in relationship with you. And then it gives us a picture of who we can be when we accept that love and when we move toward him in relationship. When we say yes 
to going on this journey of a relationship with a loving God, he then shows us through his character and through his law, through the rest of the law and scripture, what that means, what it looks like to live in devotion to him. So God wants congruence. You know that word? Congruence is when two shapes kind of fit together. If I've got two shapes that are congruent, it means they fit, they lock. God gives you a picture of himself and his character to show you then what a congruent life with him looks like. And what happens when those two things come together? That is the you that God has created you to be. That is the full, the whole, the flourishing you that he created you to be. And he gives you a picture of that in his law. So what does God want from you? He wants you. He wants the real you, the full version of you that he's created. And when I know him and I know who he is and his character, then I become full in him. And when I become full in him, I begin to bend my life to be more like him. I begin to follow who he is and who he's shown me that he is so I can follow that. And then I find that I become more full and whole in myself. That is holiness. That is holiness. Just like in the song that we sang, holiness is Christ in me. We all just sang that. Holiness is Christ in me. Holiness is the character of a holy God who has come into my life and has given me the opportunity to be in relationship with him. So going back to our story, we see a picture of a group of people fully devoted to one another, right? One in heart and mind in a way that none of us can even imagine because I can't even imagine what it would be to be one in mind with even my wife. But we see a group of people who were fully devoted. They had oneness amongst themselves. Why? Because they were fully devoted to the God that they were one with. They were all fully devoted to the same person. They had the same relationship with the same God. They had seen his character. They had seen his acts of power. He had shown them in Jesus, living with them, what it meant to be a loving and merciful friend, a gracious and loving father, a kind and caring brother. He had shown them all those things, and so they were living their lives in holiness, connected to him, and that gave them oneness with each other. What they didn't do is they didn't follow this kind of radical oneness, this radical generous life. And, and we're going to talk in just a second about all these different ways economically they lived with one another. But hear this first. They didn't do this out of some self-sacrificing willpower. Isn't that funny that that's always the way we talk about sacrifice? That sacrifice is supposed to be something that you feel like is ripping out of you? In some sense, I, I get that because it is painful. But when sacrifice is given for love, it's the most beautiful pain. It's the most freeing experience because you're doing it for something you love more. So let's talk a little bit more about that. So in this story, it's interesting, and in this description, it could have described this church in a lot of different ways. could have talked about, I don't know, like how they hung out together, which I guess it kind of did. But what it talks about is the way that they treated each other in terms of finances and economics, right? All of this has to do with their wealth, which is really interesting. 
So in verse 32, it says, all the believers were one in heart and mind. And then it says, no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. I thought that was really interesting the more I read that. It wasn't just that they said no one owned anything. In some ways, that would be easier than what this says. This says, no one claimed that the things they already owned was theirs, which means they already had ownership of something. They already understood, this is my stuff, right? This house is mine. This donkey is mine. Uh, You know, these, whatever, these servants are mine. And it says, no, they didn't claim that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything that they had. And then skipping to verse 34, it says, this was so true because they all did this that there were no needy people among them. And then it talks about how they would take the things that they had, in particular their property, which at that time was the most valuable asset that they had. Their physical property was the most, very true still today. It was their most powerful asset. And it says from time to time, those who owned land or houses would sell it so that they could bring the money to the church and say, let's distribute this to anyone who has need so that no one will have any needs. And it actually worked. We actually see here that they created the kind of community that they wanted. They actually had a community full of people who didn't have any needs because they all gave out of their excess to give to one another who didn't have enough. What I think this story is teaching us, the principle that this passage wants to give to us that we can then take into our own lives is that devotion to one another, which is what we see here. They were devoted to one another. They were devoted to one another more so than they were devoted to themselves having more than they needed. I didn't say they weren't devoted to one another even more than they were devoted to themselves necessarily. They were devoted to one another more than they were devoted to themselves having more than they needed because they were giving out of their excess. This wasn't necessarily, and this is again why I'm saying this is just a particular description. It's not just a a perfect one-to-one rule to follow, but what we see here is that they gave out of the things they had extra. They gave when they said, you know what, I actually don't need this extra property. I don't need this this extra level of something. I can give out of that so that my brother and my sister that doesn't have what what, uh, what they need can have what they can have what they need, right? They were devoted to one another more than they were devoted to their own comfort, their own pleasure, even in some ways probably their own ideas of what safety and security look like. And they were devoted to one another because they were devoted to the Lord. This is a story about devotion to the Lord. If you notice in verse 33, it talks about power. And it doesn't say, again, it doesn't say that this was out of some self-sacrificing power that they had. It says, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. What this is saying is the same power that allowed Peter to heal the blind man, just one chapter, or the the lame man, one chapter before, is the same power that's given to him to give of his wealth. Which means that you and I have no more power to live this way than Peter did to heal someone who was lame, or than he had to heal someone who was blind. It is the power of the risen Jesus working out in us through a relationship with him where he loosens our grip from things that we have decided we have to have to be happy and healthy. 
It's his power loosening, loosening our grip and our devotion to him that then allows us to act powerfully in the same way that this scripture says that they did. God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. How were there no needy persons among them? Because God's grace was so powerfully at work in them. Devoted to one another, devoted to the Lord. There's another story that I think really hits this home. Um, it's a story uh, in the Gospels where Jesus meets a rich young ruler. Do y'all know this story? Jesus meets this guy, and the title of the story tells you everything you, you need to know. He was rich, he was young, and he was a ruler. In other words, he had wealth, he had health, he had power. I don't know about you, but those things still buy, right? Even today, the exact same thing. That's all I need. I need wealth, I need health, and I need power. And he had it all. What was his issue, Jesus said? Well, we won't go into the whole story, but the, at the end of the day, the issue that this man had was a devotion issue. Because Jesus looked at all that he had, and he looked at this man who said, Jesus, I have done everything. I've lived a holy life. I've, fall, I've been a good little boy. And Jesus says, there's one thing you're lacking. Sell all of it and come follow me. Which again, like this story, that wasn't a command that all of us, the only way we can love Jesus is if we sell everything we have. The reason he told this man to sell everything he has and follow him is because Jesus knew that in the midst of his health, his wealth, and his power, he was not devoted to Jesus. At the end of the day, with all his holiness, he was devoted to his health, his wealth, and his power because he wouldn't give it all away. And so the scripture says he went away sad. So it's a devotion issue. So that should leave us finally with the question, well, then how do I be devoted to Jesus in this way? Because if you're like me, uh, and this has been a very, um, they're always personal, but in some ways this passage this week has hit home for me as I've written this sermon more than most others. And I think part of that is, and I'm not there, I haven't figured it all out. I've still got more to mine, even in my own heart. So encouragement, this could take a little while for you. Um, but I think this one has been really meaningful for me because of what I just described at the beginning, where my family and I live and the work we have devoted ourselves to. Lots of people, maybe many of you would look at us and would say, well, that's a good example of this kind of devotion. To move your family into a poor community in a much less safe community, although in some ways that's actually not true, uh, a much less safe community than where we used to live because we uh, lived in Sylvan Park. Uh, before we moved to Napier. So if you know that community, it was quite the transition for us. Many of you might be tempted to look at that and say, well, that's devotion. Well, this has been a challenging passage for me to preach on um, because it has made me really wrestle with the question that I just asked you. If it's devotion to Jesus, as opposed to devotion to my things, if it's devotion to my brother and my sister, as opposed to my devotion to myself, that allows me to be generous in this way, and if this kind of generosity is what this passage is calling me to, then how am I devoted to Jesus? I think where it starts is recognizing um, that there is no devotion to Jesus on the part of us without knowing his devotion to us first. It's not a thing you can self-sacrifice your way into. Devotion to Jesus is not a thing you can will yourself to have. It's 
So if you feel like you're not devoted to Jesus enough, wanting to be more devoted to Jesus is not going to make you more devoted to him. It's important. It's a start. You have to want it. If you don't want it, we have a different conversation to have. But just wanting it and just trying to be more devoted to Jesus is not going to make you more devoted to Jesus. Jesus makes you more devoted to Jesus. His devotion to you is the power that you need to live this way. In Matthew 13, Jesus tells two parables. Uh, One is about a treasure in a field. And then the very next one is about a pearl. And in both of those stories, there's a man who wants the treasure and wants the pearl. And what he does is he sells everything to buy the treasure and to buy the pearl. Jesus is the one who wants the treasure. Jesus is the one who wants the pearl. And we are his treasure and we are his pearl. Jesus left heaven and God the Father sent his son to die, to sacrifice. You want to talk about self-sacrifice? Not only did Jesus not have any stuff, but he gave his life away. He was devoted to you and to me because he wants that relationship. He wants the relationship with you where you say yes and follow him and then begin to conform your life and devotion to him. But he is devoted to you first. It is the power of his spirit at work in you that will break apart your hold on all these other things that make you more devoted to those things than to him. It's, it's the power that he exerts in you because he is in you. If you have asked him to be in you, then he lives in you and he wants nothing more than for you to be as devoted to him as he is to you. And that right there is the lifelong journey of the Christian. To love the Lord just half as much as he loves me. To love the Lord a quarter as much as he loves me. To love the Lord uh, an eighth as much as he loves me is the journey of the Christian. And God sold everything to claim his treasure. He willingly let go of things of lesser worth to gain something that's greater. And yes, that is exactly the model he gives to you. Let your hands go of things that are of lesser worth to pick something up of worth that's greater. And that journey will not happen. That process won't happen. You won't get to be, we won't get to be the kind of community that's listed here without saying, Jesus, I want to be devoted to you. And I need to grow in my understanding and my experience of how much you are devoted to me. So let me give you uh, three very practical ways to go on that journey. Um, We know that oftentimes uh, we love something and then we follow it. But just as often, we follow something and we realize that we've begun to love it. So it's that dance of sometimes my heart leads me to what my hands participate in. Other times, my hands lead me to what my heart participates in. It's why our habits are so important. And Scripture says that the habits, the things you spend time on, the things you love, aren't necessarily righteous. That, that's very counter to, the, to what the world teaches us. The world teaches us that whatever your heart goes after, that's what you need to follow. That, that's, like, that's the gospel of our day right now, is whatever it is that you love, whatever it is that you want to be devoted to, fullness for you means pursuing that. Scripture says, because of sin, the things you love are broken. You follow the wrong things. 
So sometimes, and this is the, the practical things I want to give you, sometimes we have to begin to practice loving something that our heart has not begun to love yet. I have to get my hands dirty. I have to begin to pursue things, even if I'm not sure I'm devoted enough for it. So three things. Um, and I would say you're getting them from at least somewhat of an expert, because these are three things that my family and I, in the last six years, if we've li- as we've lived in Napier, as affluent people, as socially, uh, economically advantaged people living in a community that's poor, these are some things that we've practiced. Um, number one, uh, obedience is rarely calculated. So this is a dance, because I'm not telling you to be um, reckless, but I'm also telling you you might need to be a little reckless, depending on what your definition of recklessness is. Uh, if you approach this like an accountant, um, you might be missing being obedient to the Lord. And if you have a problem with that, come talk to me afterward. I'm happy to have that conversation. But if you approach this with this kind of idea of, um, you know, kind of a paralysis of analysis, if I got to get my spreadsheet perfect, and it's about, I'm not saying that inherently is wrong, good stewardship of our money is a good thing, and it's also okay to let the Lord lead you into something that feels a little reckless. You hear how I'm saying both things? So obedience is rarely calculated. Follow the Lord. Obey the Lord with your finances out of your relationship with Him, not out of your relationship with good economic practices. What that might mean is you give some money sometimes when you're not exactly sure you can afford it. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Because how else am I going to break my hold on love of safety and security if I don't practice being a little unsafe and a little unsecure? Follow what you're devoted to. Or ask yourself, what am I devoted to? And if devotion to the Lord begins to pull you in places that that begin to maybe make you just a little afraid, that make you bump up against the limits of your comfort, maybe bump up against the limits of of how much I want to give away, the things that, you know, make me happy and and make, you know, are pleasurable for me, then that might be a good sign that you're stepping into the obedience of the Lord. So number one, obedience is rarely calculated. Number two, in this story, and, and I think in my experience, generosity and this kind of lifestyle is relationship-based. It's not charity. What that means is this kind of lifestyle should happen within your community first. Notice, they didn't go outside of their community in this story. This was all what happened within their community. So this does a couple things. This should challenge the community that we're in because if we're in a community of no needs, how are we supposed to practice this within our community? I don't think this is a community of no needs. I think there are some serious needs in this community. That would be the good place to start. However, number two, this kind of relationship-based generosity and and financial and, and material relationship with one another should also happen outside of your community to bring people into the community. That's the no charity piece. So in Napier, this community is absolutely overrun with charity. And no one wants to come and build relationships. And so what you get is sometimes helpful, but lots of times dangerous and damaging charity where money and stuff just flows into the neighborhood without any connection to the people, without any uh, uh, understanding or desire to get to know who lives in the community and what they actually need. So I think this story teaches us that that this kind of lifestyle is relationship-based. It happens within the community first. It happens without 
you know, outside the community to then bring people into the community. It's a witness. It's what, it's what God always told his people way back in the Old Testament, be this kind of generous people. Because the Old Testament was full of this kind of command to live with each other in a spirit of giving, in a spirit of no one has any needs. And the purpose of that was to always show to the outside world, this is a kind of community where something amazing is happening, something transformative. So it's relationship-based. I would say as an element of number two, this also teaches us that we give to the church first and we give outside the church second. And I know you're like, well, yeah, pastor who works for a church that has a budget to me, that's a great thing to say. I think this is what it teaches though. Again, you can come and challenge me. I'd be happy to talk about it. I think this shows us that God's, at least in this story, the ideal he had for this community is that the church received the wealth of its people and then with extremely good stewardship cared for, each, cared for one another and cared for its members. So it's something that I think should challenge us to think about where does my money go? Am I, am, I, am I encouraging my church to be a place that stewards the money of its people very well so that then I can be comfortable giving to my church? I hope that's something that Midtown is trying very hard to be. It's one of the reasons why I think we want to be very transparent with our money. You can ask any elder, any staff member, where does my money go? Can you show it to me? Trust me, there's spreadsheets that I can't even look at because they're too complicated, but they're available, right? They're, they're, it, transparency is very important to us. That's just kind of an aside. Lastly, um, I think the last practical point here for us is uh, to go first. Um, I think as a, as a human race, uh, we are so bad at this, this kind of generous living, that if you're a follower, uh, you may never do it because you might never get a, an example to follow. So go first. No one else is going to do it for you. Um, again, ties to number one, even if it feels a little reckless, maybe find someone that you think uh, you can do it with, right? Have some wisdom together to say, what does it look like for me to live? Obviously, if you're in a family, if you have a husband or a wife, this is something that should be happening between the two of you together, right? If you have kids, you're considering your whole family. But the, the point is, how are we living with devotion to Jesus because of his devotion to us that then calls us out to live with devotion to one another in a way that makes a community that's amazing. So challenge how calculated you are in all this. Think about giving in a relationship context within the community and to bring people into the community. And then finally, go first. And in all of this, remember, Jesus left his treasures to come find the thing he loved the most, which was you and which was me. You are the treasure in the field, you are the pearl of great price. He is devoted to you. And he offers you the chance of a lifestyle of devotion to him. All right, let me pray. Jesus, thank you for this morning. Uh, whew, Lord, I pray this, is a, this, this can feel so sticky. And I just pray, Lord, for me and for everyone, pull us out of the stickiness. Um, connect us with your heart, Jesus. Lord, if, if nothing else happens as a result of our time together this morning, except that people say, you know what, I, I think I need to know Jesus a little better. I think I need to have a better relationship with him. I think I need to know your heart, Lord, to lead me into this. Then praise God. Would we pursue you, Jesus, 
above all things. And would we believe something so crazy and so counterintuitive to my heart that says you love me above all things? That you are more devoted to me than I can ever be to you. And with that grace, the power of that grace that says it, it, it made them into a community that had no needs, would the power of that grace fall on us as well? In Jesus' name, amen.